Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing with My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Hey, Jack. So, panel, Jack, good to see you guys. Good to see chat. Actually, I don't have it up yet, so it's going to take me a minute to see chat. <laughs> but it's good to be here for another another week. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram, Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And if you don't do Instagram, you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. And I have experience in growing synthetically and growing my mind stopping working organically. So I can help you with either one. <laughs> it's all good. We, uh, your mind was booting up with the chat. I see Skillbo joined with the first message there. And we've got a few other Rowdy420, Dr. MJ, MKUltra, Sour Diesel Tangy, Real Red Hairs, and some regulars. But with that said, I want to pass it to Dr. MJ Coco so he can go ahead and introduce himself. Hey guys, yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I'm excited to be back for another show. We get back into the sort of regular swing of things here. And uh, happy to, to see people in the chat and look forward to a good show. Thanks, Jack. No problem. It looks like we lost the American one. He was with us for a second and then he popped out. Hopefully he's not having too many technical difficulties. Next up, Noah the Grower. Yeah, how's it going, everybody? I'm Noah the Grower from Instagram. You can find me there. Uh, Noah the Grower with two E's and uh, happy to be here. Always have to have you back. It looks like we are probably about half mass for the panel this week so far. Um, half <laughs> half the actual crew. I don't know. Half mass is like a flag flying and then nobody's dead. So don't want to scare anybody, or at least to my knowledge. Uh, we're all still healthy and kicking. But uh, last and certainly not least of who's with us right now, Matthew Gates. Yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. If you're curious about pests and plant health and questions like that you can find me on my instagram which is at sync angel or on my youtube channel uh zenthanol and also for professional inquiries you can check me out at zenthanol.com and i have a really cool presentation coming up i'm still working on it uh, it'll be about budworm moths the three big ones uh the corn earworm the tobacco budworm and the um uh, cotton bullworm. These three species we'll be going over in great detail on the future Canvas Project Zero Two channel, maybe in a week or two. Great stuff, and always happy to see you putting out content there for the community. And uh, I will say, I thought you were last, and then uh, Russ Brandon jumped in. So if he's able to hear me, I can see him and Aaron the Grower over there. Fucking collaboration on the stream right now. Aaron the Grower and Russ Brandon from Oklahoma. Why don't you two go ahead and introduce yourselves? Hey, what's going on, everybody? If you're new to the show and you're not familiar with myself, my name is Brandon Rust, and you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. And you can also find all of my products from Bokashi Earthworks, which is my company, at www.bokashieearthworks.com. And you can find amendments, microbes, humate fertilizer, as well as exclusive seed drops. Next up, Aaron the Grower. Oh, yeah. And I am Aaron the Grower, ATG Acres on Instagram, atgacres.com. And I am chilling with Brandon because I pulled up um, to buy some soil. I got a repot coming up this week and I needed something now. So here we are. We're uh, blazing up, chilling, and happy to see you guys. Okay. We're happy to see you. This is always fun when uh, two of the panelists can come live from the same stream. Looks like you got a nice big bong over there getting ready to fire it up. But uh, officially now, last and certainly not least, the American one. 
Oh, Hello, everyone. Yeah, my Wi-Fi just dropped, but um, it's always good to be here, Jack. Good to see you, everyone on the panel. And uh, ATGA, because you look at Mighty Amish today. I like the look. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Hello, everyone in chat. Um, I'm the American one. Most of you know me. Uh, yeah, I don't have much on YouTube, but I'm the American one underscore with underscore 18s on the IG. And I am the American one on uh, YouTube, if you can hunt me down. I'm the little guy with the American top hat. Oh yeah, peace. <clears throat> happy to have you back, and uh, just happy to see everybody, as uh, per usual. I guess maybe I don't have a topic this evening planned. We uh, potentially thought about having a guest, but it didn't line up uh, for this evening. So we're just going to be hanging with the crew in the chat. So if you'd like to, in the chat, start uh, writing some questions to the panelists and tagging them. If you have a question for a specific panelist, or you could tag myself at Cheap Home Grow or at Jack Greenstock. That way, I could see it. It'll light it up with an orange box in the chat. Make sure you're on the live chat, by the way, so that you don't have any of the messages filtered out if you're trying to participate in all of the conversation and see the answers to some of these great questions that are being dropped. So since there's not any topics of, uh, I guess, right off the top, maybe we could go around and do uh, some garden updates. So I can, I popped actually for, for all flowers outside already. I planted seeds outside. Actually, I did it different this year, a little experiment. So this is actually cool to share this. I've been doing little experiments of, I love popping direct in the media that I'm gonna end up in. I just, I don't know. I think there's something to letting it acclimate right away to where it's gonna be. And I still think that when you take it out of like even paper towel, you're still chancing taking micro tears and things like that. So, but I don't have the greatest success popping straight in the media. So, I tried uh, something different this time. I went, um, and these were outside pots too. I don't know if that, I don't think that matters, but I just took root right. So I did a root right just like I would normally for a clone, you know, just squeezed it out, just water, and then put the seed in. I just kind of rolled the seed across the top of the surface till I got to the hole and then popped it in. And that was it. And then I, then I went and planted that immediately out into the soil and i think because of the spongy nature of those little peat plugs it just kept the right moisture level even outside because i was worried it was going to dry out of the surface but yeah they're not good never had it. and i went out there actually in, in three days all four had popped um i don't care if you don't care any covers on it or was it just uh, exposed to the air no well i did have uh, so after i planted it i seeded in a a crop cover and then i uh, took some grass clippings, just took grass clipping off my compost pile and made that as my mulch layer on top. So there's, I guess, a technically a little bit of a layer of maybe grass clippings, but that's it. That'll keep the moisture in though enough. It's like a plastic bag. Yeah, that was my hope. Yeah, that was my hope. And yeah. I was honestly worried about birds coming down, trying to come up and grab the seeds. So try to camouflage it. That's a good, good, uh, technique there. I think, um, I think that it also might, and I'd have to ask Matthew about this one, but maybe it would provide some protection from some of the stuff that can like the roly polies. I've heard uh, people say when they pop seedlings, occasionally we'll come and chomp them, take them down. Um, but I'm curious. I experienced that. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it definitely does happen. And um, is there anything that you'd be worried about from like adding grass from his compost? Or um, do you think that would be like providing a stealth kind of barrier that would be more beneficial than it could be harmful? Just the grass clippings. Yeah. I mean, not really super, like nothing comes to my mind off the top of my head as being a, a big problem. Um, but like, I do know that 
sometimes I was actually just answering this question to somebody um, on Instagram where they were asking if like, you know, because they had gotten this impression from another person that uh, using any sort of clippings or like cuttings from leaves and things could be a problem potentially. And they asked if that could be. And in a way, it could be inoculate for some, you know, pathogens, some beneficials too, but also some some pathogens potentially. So um, if you process it first in some way, like composting or something like that, um, there's an advantage to doing it that way. For example, it could be that you deal with no problems you know, 99 out of a hundred times. And then one of those times you get like something not great. It just kind of depends on where you are and, and if you've like processed it and how much you're putting on there. Um, yeah. And like and seasonally, I feel like could change biggest, if it was yeah, like a definitely. Later season, like later, wetter versus like a drier. The biggest factor in my opinion, from my experience at an outdoor growing is, is how much you put on is huge. Yes. It's huge. <laughs> So I went, I went really, really light with it on purpose because I wanted there just to make sure that the seeds aren't blowing away and the birds aren't coming and grabbing them. And not only the seeds of the cannabis, but the cover crop I put down, some of those seeds are pretty big. And I don't like put pounding those in too hard. I like them to be, you know, just barely in the soil so that they germinate pretty quick. It's like um, our buddy, I always want to call him a uh, full duplex. His old name was Mandalorian, I think. And now he's no automatics, mm-hmm. but he just sent us a picture in our group chat, the little cheap home grow group of, I think it was Brandon's crop cover. And I want to say it was some sort of clover and they were huge fucking leaves. He's like, I think this is like the second year and it reseeded itself naturally uh, without having to plant it. And he's just showing with some photos how amazingly it's growing. So it's pretty cool to see. And uh, I definitely think it can help get some nitrogen into the soil. And uh, it can also, you know, you chop and drop it, provide some nutrients uh, other than nitrogen and tons of benefits to the moisture levels being kept consistent, microbes staying alive. All those are great things. And a lot of people don't want to put that effort in for the crop cover, but it can be simpler and easier than some people think. And then at the opposite end, I have seen some people have some issues when they don't manage their crop cover enough. Um, they yeah, end up yeah. with like pests or other things because of it. And it's, it's just a balancing act, I guess, with anything, right? especially with legumes like peas and things like that, that like to climb. It's like, you got to keep on top of that. You can't just let them go or they're going to be up in your canvas before you know it. I think Brandon also didn't like, uh, I think it was white clover because it got too tall and it started like seeding, not the cannabis, but seeds of itself. You want the white clover. The white clover is the low clover. Yeah. Was it red clover or which which one did you put out? Red clover or like the crimson clover. Those are the ones that get a, a lot taller. And the reason why, so there's, I've used different crop covers. And the reason why I went with those three is because it's really, really beneficial, especially in outdoor soils, especially when you're trying to build soil structure and organic matter. Daikon radish really breaks up the soil. It gets really big. The uh, low growing um, clover really helps with water retention and it creates kind of uh, another atmosphere. If you can get a full like mat of that's of pretty easy cover. to do too <laughs> yeah underneath there like you get so much nutrient cycling and like it's like a whole another little environment because you get so much uh humidity trapped underneath that that canopy <coughs> um, and then the uh i don't like to use any of the stuff that like can climb like peas or beans because that gets like they crawl up the weed and shit and <laughs> 
or uh, even like hemp shit i remember uh gnarly barley and i love build a soil but i don't know what they were thinking with their gnarly barley they weren't grinding it or they were sending the, not unground it wasn't ground finely enough like hemp so seeds cool. and a bunch of people got volunteer cannabis plants which were hemp and uh that's something you had to be definitely careful of because it could start to flower and throw some pollen if it's a male and i don't think anybody wants a bunch of have the crop cover i have has uh daikon radish it has a white clover winter rye <laughs> Tao's holding it up rye winter rye Tao's got it right there yeah so the winter rye i like that too that's like a grass almost it's a, it's a yeah it's a grass and i like it because it doesn't get too out of control like as far as it won't yeah, like usually you see hairy vetch or something like that yeah so brandon suppose like i have a uh, native soil barren land that I'm going to plant this in. Do I just let it grow or do I chop and drop it to like, and how long? Cause yeah, I, I, that's what I'm going to do with this, with this bag right here. I think let it, let it all just grow out naturally and naturally, or if you need to chop it then chop it. But I like to just those daikon radish and all those things will get huge. Those like I pulled, uh, the soil that I had my crop cover in, like it was hard to actually pull the daikon radish out of it because the soil was so already compact. Um, but I didn't need to pull the daikon radish out of it. All I wanted to do was break up that soil anyway. So that's what I was doing. I was essentially poking big ass long holes like this, you know, this this wide into this native soil. And then that stuff all decomposes. All that organic matter is there. All that nutrient that's that's in that root right there you know and then all that leaf matter yeah, just mulch it back in that's actually a technique they do in organic farming like in large-scale organic farming they'll plant a whole field of daikon radish to try to break up hard pans just let those fuckers grow and grow and grow and grow and then just go through and chop the tops off and let them just decompose in the ground <laughs> just like brandon described and it's a when it one rains, of the options it's, it's probably holes and, yeah. less less destructive than when they flip the entire field to uh, plants into it. Um, it's a lot longer process and it definitely requires more like effort and at least a year or, you know, a season of preparation. But yeah, I think that's a like good letting it go fallow, but instead of oh. letting it go fallow, you actually are legitimately planting with something on purpose, but it's still kind of a fallow thing because you're just going to go through and, and mow it down like grass anyway. If you, uh, if you're like starting an organic farm, you still, for the most part, wherever you're going to be cultivating at, you're going to have to prep that, right? You're gonna have to get organic matter in there. You're gonna have to get mineral nutrient in there. And a lot of times you'll start off with by tilling and then disking like you would normal. But after that, you, you implement a different practice. You know, you start with the, the crop covering, but you want to get all your minerals in there and your amendments mixed in, and you want to have, you don't want soil that's too compact. Even when you're doing something like hue culture and stuff like that, you know, there, there's a lot of prep work. You're bringing in a lot of things to, to make sure you're successful. So the same thing, you got to prep your soil even when you're starting uh, new. But you don't have to do that after you get all your stuff prepped, you know, you do your crop covers. You do uh, multi-species uh, crops are like, you know, can be really beneficial. With the regulations of that, though, it kind of is built into it because you have to wait, what is it, six, seven years or something 
with no conventional agriculture on it before you can even claim a crop off there is organic. So you can take those years to do exactly what you're saying. I think it might be three years. I think it's three oh, years. Three now. Okay. I, you know, it's really interesting that you brought that up. Yeah. Cause I was, uh, I was looking at a bunch of EPA stuff and I was going through their website and I found this, it's like the ultimate labeling guide. It's like a 200 page pamphlet that they built on basically just everything that you could imagine when it comes to labeling and regulations for labeling. And then most of it, you have to refer to like this other thing that's like hundreds of pages long, which is a federal guideline. So you gotta have to go back and forth between these two things. Um, and I was actually looking at that um, one of the things for CDF certification and labeling, if you're going to put like organic CDFA or whatever certified, um, if you're pr producing something, is that you have the land can actually not have been conventionally farmed for a certain period of time. I just Googled and uh, it said it could be three to five years. And I think there's probably the best you can do is three, I would imagine. And five is uh, probably like the average or slower amount of time. Um, and it might be different for different crops. Like I think corn, it depends it on what the way. history of that land was. But um, I mean, if yeah. you're not, if it's if it's something that you pick up and you don't have to, uh, and it hasn't been farmed, and you start a farm, I I think that you're good to go. Yeah, if the land wasn't you hasn't had a history of chemical treatments to it, whether it was for farming or for other purposes. But yeah, it's that history of having used chemicals on that on that land. Anybody who's transitioning farms, though, um, I think Bill Gates is actually one of the people right now doing this who bought a bunch of conventional farmland and is transitioning it to organic. So it's not like you might have heard articles of that a year or two ago, and you won't actually be seeing those farms be considered organic until that three or five year period's up. But he also bought a bunch of organic farms, too. So uh, interesting. Nonetheless, um, maybe on the more cannabis growing related topic. I'm curious uh, how things are going in Noah Vigroa's neck of the woods. It's going good. Um, been uh, working hard. I uh, last little bit there on the last stream, or I think maybe even after we went off there, I went live in my room. I think I'll go live in there next week. But yeah, I got a bunch of stuff rocking and rolling. I've been really busy. Um, I actually just went and got a new a new one. I got this uh, string called uh, Moon Boots. It's like Moonbow some number across with white Tahoe cookies excited about that I actually got a couple of uh, Afghan cherry seeds that I popped that I got from Kyle um, and then just all my normal stuff and I'm using the bio 365 soil and right now I'm using biobiz nutrients trying to be organic and then I actually just got a, a package from uh, this company called Aptis they sent me a bunch of nutrients so I'm going to try that out here in the next run or two and on a one hood and see what happens and yeah that's pretty much where I'm at I'd say Aptis is pretty legit but I'm more used to seeing it in like cocoa or hydro systems it could probably be run in soil kind of like how you used to run your other nutrients in soil but um, uh, I was going to ask where how much space do you uh hunt the new seeds and stuff like i, I heard you say you pop some stuff from kyle breeder so how much space because i've seen your flower room before and i'm imagining you're not running it alongside the tried and true stuff no and um that's kind of i'm kind of at a different spot because i haven't done that for a while but i bought a little two by four tent and i actually did a butt for a, my vegetable garden and i started some seeds in there and the seeds are feminized and i'm just gonna like i'm gonna keep them in like two gallon pots just kind of small maybe i might 
take a couple clones from each one and then watch it and flower, you know, week seven. And if I don't like it, then just kill the clones and just be the only run of it. But if I like it rather than reveg it, I'll just take the clones and then I'm going to keep on the outside of the light so I can just watch it real close and, you know, rock and roll. <laughs> I love that. It's a fun time hunt through new stuff, but uh, you can always rely on your tried and true cuts there. Are you running the moon boots? I think you called it with the. Yeah. Uh, well, I just got it. It's probably only, it's, it's like a teen right now. And then I'll probably put it in flower in like I don't know, three weeks or a month. But I love uh, archives yeah. work. The moon yeah. has been pretty flavorful. I think that's a cross of uh slurricane, if I'm not mistaken, or mm-hmm. it's got some purple in it, some grapey, gassy phenos. And I've really enjoyed uh, a lot of that in the past, but I'm looking forward to seeing what you can do with it for sure. How are things going in uh, your neck of the woods there, Dr. MJ? Things are going pretty good. I don't have any plants right now, but um, things are good with my last harvest. I'm definitely enjoying the plants that I pulled down. I pulled down one of uh, Kyle's original New England rock candies, which is pretty good. Um, But yeah, I had four different strains. enjoying them all but it's going to be probably august before i start growing again uh, i'll sit out the hot months and i'm growing a or sorry building a, a little grow room um so i'll have a better place to to grow in when i do come back at it but i always miss not having plants when i or miss having plants when i don't have them yeah it's uh as soon as you have that last crop and you have no plants going I kind of get like a, an itch, like I want to start growing again, or like I, I miss having the plants alive for sure. And yeah, I was complaining about them endlessly while they were alive, like because I had to take care of them. And I was hand watering twice a day, which just was like a huge pain in my ass. Um, so, but yeah, I definitely miss them now. It's like when the kids go out to college or something, I don't know. It, it just like, oh, they were a pain in the ass while they were here, but you miss them when they're gone. Empty tent syndrome. <laughs> Empty yeah, plot empty. syndrome. Ah, oh, you got me before. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> empty ten syndrome. Um, yeah, but you know, I think everybody sort of knows and appreciates this. Like having a garden, like you know, having your your cannabis plants there brings a certain sense of satisfaction to your life, regardless of what else is going on. And even if it is a pain in the ass, it's it's fulfilling in a certain sense that you definitely miss when you don't have them for a while. But I'll have them again soon. And I'm, I'm excited about sort of getting a better, better space for them. So. Sounds good. And uh, how about an update from the Oklahoma boys over there? I've seen uh, Aaron, the grower. It looks like you're doing pretty well on your first run. And uh, Brandon, maybe you could give us an update after Aaron of uh, where you're at. Cause I know you've got your, a lot of irons in the fire to say, the, uh, say it simply. Um, <clears throat> so I'm in week six and things are looking good. Um, I'm sort of like my, my worst enemy. So the, the first thing I can think of is like, what are the problems I'm having? And that is that I don't, the, the grow doesn't have enough CO2. Something Brandon and I were talking about, actually, um, he handed me a few fertilizers and said, these will help with CO2. So I'm going to run those a little bit and see if I can play with some CO2 levels before I go and buy like a CO2 burner. Um, that's what's on my plate. What's going on with you? Oh, man. Uh, okay, so I am just doing the Bokashi Earthworks thing. I've got 
Yeah, I got a meeting next week in Las Vegas with uh, at the FOS headquarters, the LED company. So I got that going on, and then I got a couple of conventions coming up. I got one in Chicago. I got one coming up in Richmond, Virginia. I got one coming up in Oklahoma later on, and in New Mexico. So yeah, I'm gonna start doing the whole like. What is it? I guess it's trade show. Yep. B2B trade show thing, you know? Um, yeah. We're just finalizing our, our, uh, our labels here. I'll show you. We got the, uh, the smart carbon right here. This is the, uh, what is this? This is the potassium humate, which is still has NPK in it. Other micro. In macronutrients, but I've been totally flipped over to it. What's that? I said it's Spartan approved, by the way. I've been totally flipped over to it in my oh, garden. Dude, it's like magic. So um, I had to keep doing some label revisions. Like I couldn't, you can't put humic acid or like folic acid. You can only put like you can put humic substances. And so uh we're getting all the, the final label revisions. And that's what we needed to do before we like, I wanted to make sure everything was perfect that we could just replicate that same thing as we register, because we have to register her through the ag department in each state for every product. And it's like, okay, either like a hundred or $200 per product per state. And so I have to go and like literally submit one by one by one for the product, fill out their little thing and then pay them. I'm sure there's someone you can pay who's done this for other companies who does the state-by-state -state paperwork for you. And you could just give them your outline and they'll be able to kind of copy paste I mean, it. They're going to do the same thing that you could, that anybody else could do. They're just going to go online and follow the, the, the little submission of paperwork and stuff. Right. I just think that's not the best use of your personal time. <laughs> like no, no, I, I'm not the one, I, for, you know, thankfully uh, I have a computer guy that is taking care of all that stuff. That's good. Well, I was going to ask um, mainly that why is it that they don't allow you to say humic acids or fulvic acids? Is there like a patent? Does somebody, some company uh, own that you, word or? Like, what's okay. The so I'm going to be a hundred percent real with you when it comes to like organic certification programs, when it comes to uh, like EPA stuff, a lot of it really just comes down to money. It, it, they want you to pay um and it could be years before you even get approved for something if it's like something that's new that they don't know or it the language doesn't match their language it's it's they have like these federal outlines and they'll have outlines that are state by state for different organizations if it's like omri or cdfa or epa or uh you know some federal like food and drug you know everybody has different like guidelines you know and so you have to know how to navigate all that stuff um and that's one of the things that you have to do when it comes to fertilizers and it's like most of it is just that they that they want i don't know two hundred dollars three hundred dollars i don't know what well, you're, you're competing against like bear and monsanto and these other giant fertilizer companies that two hundred dollars to them is like a drop in the bucket you know it's like they don't even blink yeah. at that and so they can apply it and it's okay and it's okay but when it comes down to it it's like by the time you're said and done if it's a hundred or two hundred dollars per product 
let's say I just want to do the humate fertilizers and the microbe plus to start with or something, you know, that's going to be 25 grand right there that you're going to have to drop, you know, just to be able to distribute your fertilizer in all 50 states. Yeah. So do you have any like plans to kind of uh, analyze which states are the most active in purchasing and like go through state by state, like, well, California is huge. So let's start yeah. there one. Cause they're hard, but two, they California have 40 million people and a lot of them grow a ton of shit. Not just cannabis, California actually has the hardest labeling compliance along with Oregon and Washington. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a standard. If you can get compliant there with all the regulations that they have for their certification programs, you can pretty much just submit that across the board and be good to go. Cause mm-hmm. you'll have an, a, a good template. Um, some other states aren't as, as stringent when it comes to their requirements and like what needs to be there, but it's all pretty much the same. Like you do it, a lot of direct sale currently. So like who, oh, yeah, where right. are you shipping the most stuff to? If you, well, I, if, I, if I wanted to pull up the analytics, I could, you know, I could go on the back end of the website and pull up the, the analytics. Well, he just shipped two yards to my F three fifty. Yeah. <laughs> so Oklahoma is definitely supporting Bokashi Earthworks, but uh, oh, yeah. outside of Oklahoma, well, would you say, like, I mean, what, what are uh, my, popular? a large majority of my soils leaving the state though, too. Like I sent a huge volume to New Mexico and they're still buying a bunch with the farm that I'm working with out there. There's a lot of people in Oklahoma that are getting it, you know, like people that I work with myself included people ask for it. They, I mean, the whole thing is that I'm, I'm putting these at levels that are going to be uh, uh, sufficient for, you know, what we're trying to do here with, with weed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm uh, curious to see how things are going for Tao over there. I know that he's got some of your products. I'm, I'm curious if other people in uh, New York will follow suit because it's growing. I've heard that even their hemp growers are going to start if they haven't already being licensed to grow a full acre of like high thc cannabis in their multiple acres i don't know what the uh canopy is but they already got the okay they got the licenses the the hemp growers of new york got the recreational thc licenses already pretty much Um, i've heard heard it kind of pitched as like an experimental thc plot like so a section of their entire canopy could be and i think it might be a single acre or maybe a little more yeah i should really know more but I'm in my own little world over here. Well, how, how's uh, your own little world over there? What are you growing? How, how are the plants? Uh, I'm still going. I'm still smoking on the Chocotai mostly and uh, different phenos of that or genos, whatever. Uh, a lot of it is just really good, but it has not strong in flavor or terps, really. The one that I picked is so far the best one. So I'm happy about that. But I still have like cuts of like three or four different ones. And then I have two males and a chocolate that I still... I'm, uh, I'm probably just going <clears> to <throat> use that chocolate anyway to to seed and see what happens. But um, I recently had a debacle with my worm bin. Uh, I lo- my, my, they died, basically. And uh, I think did it, it get was, freezing or like what? Uh, it, I, think I, either, I think it was a combination of me just being a fuck up and like being a moron. And uh, I think I overfed them and then I had these red mites overtake the fucking bin pretty much. And it, it's amazing how, yeah, how red these will fuck those worms up. Too, totally took over. Well, Tao, didn't then, you also say that you top dressed a plant with your worm castings and then it died like a few days later? No, no, that was that was other top dressing ad- additives that I did that. Cause then I recently, then I was like, screw it, I'm just gonna top my worth worm castings from now on. 
And luckily, I have like a, I have it like almost a 55 gallon tub of them that I sifted out already. But I'm still learning constantly about everything, and it's amazing how much you really don't know. So, I with this what's box, happened what, since? What what's happened since? Did you just leave it or what? Yeah, no, I I uh, sifted what was there, and then I I restarted because. Uh, and I don't trust the one that like where they died in. I don't trust yeah. that shit. I, I'm sure those red mites are just waiting for a good splash of water to re to like repopulate. So I'm um, I'm just letting that one sit fallow. I, I'm probably gonna bring that outside somewhere. I would um, just but, I would just take some fucking if you don't have it already, grab some uh, BB from Brandon's uh, website. Actually, I do just, have that, but I don't know if it kills them red mites. I don't know what it I kills. Fucking, you know? I would just sprinkle that in your fucking everywhere, everywhere. And, what you yeah. got sifted out and restart it and put it in there. Yeah. And just fucking go to town. But so I started a brand new one and I actually purchased more worms. And then I re I started, you know, I, I watched more and more uh, uh, information on earthworms. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go a little different. I'm going to keep it a little more drier and not put so much stuff in constantly and, you know, mm. keep an eye on it. And I'm going to start separating them. Like that's, the one I thing I learned drastically is once they get overpopulated, they'll stop breeding because yeah. there's not enough room. But if you continually take worms out and have more space for them, they'll continually uh, continue more population growth. They now, actually have breeders. When you beans. sifted them, did you get any? You might have still got even if the worms. Oh yeah, died, there was still there was still casting, some worms. I mean, there was still some cocoon. live ones. And the cocoon. That's the other thing I learned. I've probably been sifting out all the cocoons when I take my earthworm cast. Yeah. Well, what size what size holes are you using quarter inch yeah, yeah. quarter inch is what i was using and before okay, that then. so it'll yeah. go right through that so that's another great point spot because that's i think a big part of it i was harvesting the earthworm castings and all the cocoons when i did it because so, at first i was just scraping them like i was moving all the shit to one side and letting the worms burrow in i was scraping off the top then I'm realized, wow, and I was just using that as earthworm castings. I never sifted them. Then I'm like, wow, I got to sift them. So I sifted them through that quarter inch, and I really liked that stuff better. It was literally so like, good. oh, yeah. it was so good. But then I realized watching the latest video that I watched that the, the earthworm uh, castings are actually like 330 seconds will go through. And the well, they say an eighth. So, so like if you, if you do the, if you can find eighth inch fucking. Uh, landscaping fab or hardware fabric you're fucking right golden, but i can't find that shit anywhere but the core right normally you take the quarter inch and then you have it nice and sifted then you take that and go one more time through an eighth yep. inch and that's and then the, the casting keep the cocoons separate the, yeah keep the cocoons from falling through and then you keep them in your uh your your cycle there so yeah that's a whole bunch of shit i learned recently and and uh <laughs> as well as two guys like two old guys that uh have really good uh or appear to have really good that's another thing they appear to have really good earthworm casting procedures they've been using chicken feed you know organic non-gmo chicken feed it's called crumbles i think it's for like chick for babies oh, and uh, they say so you just sprinkle that on top they love it and as well as like because you don't have enough like you don't have enough if you really get things rolling you don't have enough garbage from your kitchen or whatever to feed all your worms so basically, and I, I use peat moss as my bedding. I hate using cardboard because I don't trust, I don't trust cardboard, but. I agree with you because I'm going to put it in my fucking plants. So it might as well be the same shit, but my plants are not ready. Right. And I put all my, uh, you know, all my cannabis. Uh, it's cocoa before too. Cocoa works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. And yeah, my plants are all good. Um, I have like two tents down right now. I'm going to, I got to re, uh, 
you know, uh, restart, reset up, clean out. I think I'm going to ditch one. One's pretty damn old. I think I'm just going to get a new one. And yeah, with the summer coming up, I'm planning on uh, making a, adjustments to ensure uh, happy plants, happy me over the summer this time a little more better. So yeah, that's where I'm at. I was uh, thinking for an idea, if you can't find eighth inch, maybe just take two sheets of quarter inch uh, screen, like put it through like a bucket or some sort of thing and then interweave it. Yeah, right. So they actually like, have, um, they sell, you know, worm sifting stuff, that, but he had a machine that was like, obviously like probably a couple grand and it had the two different size screens. So the, the actual uh, earthworm castings would go through that fine screen and then the cocoons and whatever else would go through another screen. And then even further down the line, like bigger chunks and actual earthworms would go over the edge and back into, uh, into his thing. So there's I'm like the sure flow, I find it. I'm going to figure through reactor style is pretty badass where they have like rollers or like away from the bottom yeah. where it kind of gets sifted and then it eventually works its way where it can just roll out the bottom and it's right. completely done castings like um, Terravesco is who I get mine from their Sonoma Valley worm farm. Formerly they were featured on the biggest little farm and their castings are the best that I've ever found commercially. Um, they're not like damp or like uh, clumpy. It is like a very uniform um, it almost doesn't look like castings because I'm so used to castings kind of being clumpier and um, their stuff is, they test it every two months and it's always exactly the same. Uh, it's like, like coffee Co when it's like coffee and yeah. it looks like coffee. It literally yeah, looks like same. brown, nice, rich. It smells great. It feels great in your hands. Like it, it kind of pours through your hands like a kinetic sand. Like it's just, uh, it's, it's so different than the amateur stuff that I would get locally, even like from uh, this place that they just have worm bins and, I would see them open it up and there'd be like spider mites and shit crawling across the top. And like, it's uh, not, not as well kept as it should be. So yeah, it, when it looks like it's going to be heavy and like um, dense, but then you stick your hand in it and lift it up. You're like, wow, that's like, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. I used to think that like the dark black was like a, a great thing always, but it doesn't necessarily always uh, turn out the best I, I didn't have terrible results but I, i've just gotten better results with the more uniform consistency castings that are kind of like a coffee kind of how you've described and um yeah good stuff from worms for sure i'm always up to learn more about them uh, my wife doesn't want me to keep my own worm bin so i'm still uh, sourcing worm castings at the best quality that i can find but i think when we get a larger place i'll maybe be able to pull it off um, do you guys have any thoughts or tips for outdoor worm bins to prevent Cause I know here we have like skunks, raccoons, all sorts of rats. Raptors, rats. That was my experience. I had a really great, uh, um, I got one, I got that urban worm bag that a lot of people seem to really like, and it's great and everything except, well, I mean, rats can get into a lot of things, but it was, uh, not difficult at all for something to go right through to that layer and, uh, get into the compost. So you have to protect it. I think so in a lot are of those places, essentially like a fabric pot or like a, aerated kind of bag or what kind of material was it yeah um i don't remember the exact details about how it was uh, constructed but it was a pretty it was a pretty nice honestly i think it's a great um piece of equipment and it was easy to open up but yeah it was essentially like a um like a, a hardened maybe like uh some sort of artificial material that was used to like kind of keep it very taut but also breathable it also let liquid through too in case it rained or something like that like a synthetic uh, canvas maybe yeah it was it was um it was really nice but yeah you could look it up it's the uh yeah the urban worm 
bag or bin, I think it was called. I feel like maybe and wrapping wrapping it in like a chicken wire or something like that. I was going to say. Prevent potentially um, rats or other things from burrowing through it and getting in. Definitely. And, yeah. but, but I mean, one of the other benefits that you get it or one of the reasons to get it is because it's sort of convenient, but um, with enough preparation, I think you could make a cage system that wasn't like a real hassle to like get through. Oh, oh but the other cool thing about it was that there was a, there's a bottom section um, that kind of had like a drawstring. So you could kind of easily you either open up the top or you could collect things from the bottom. And I guess that was one of the, kind of cool features about it yeah it's like a flow through system you just keep on you throw shit in the top and keep collecting at the bottom it's a pretty nice design yeah i was just going to mention one of the other things i'm going to well i started doing already but i'm going to be uh more conscious i'm going to like have a separate bin now that i'm going to let the stuff decompose a little further without it put throwing it right into the worm bin um just to make it easier and like let it uh get softer form but i've also if you only feed half of the worm bin if it's all good if, it's, if they're loving the spot if you only feed half of it they'll have a safe place to go and i've done that before but i've also done it where i put in a lot of wet uh leaves and man that thing got heated up like i stuck my hand in there I was like wow so so yeah that's one of the other reasons why i'm thinking i'm going to keep it as separate for at first and then let it uh you know, decompose on its own a bit and then just add a little bit of that in all the time, you know? What portion of your soil are you using as uh, worm castings? Like what part of it, like percent of the mix would you estimate? Well, I added and I top dressed it. So I would say it, it's close to 30% by the time, like, uh, it's like I, what I've been doing lately is taking off about as deep as a one gallon container uh, of the whole top area and then I'll replace it with fresh soil that has amendments in it. And that amendment has like uh, at least a third of worm castings extra, you know? So, and then I'm trying to just leave the lower half for whatever uh, is brewing to stay alive down there. And it seems to be doing good right now. So do you actively add worms to the pots or do you get them just from adding uh, the castings? No, I don't. And I, I've only found them in a couple of containers. I think I let my dry back go too dry sometimes. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I haven't really found them in my container very often. It could I, be I had it, and I'm thinking about, I'm really considering making a four by four foot bed in one of my tents just for the ease of it. And then I, I'm sure, you know, I would let them, I would let some loose in there. But um, Do you use cover yeah, crop in there or no? What's that, Spartan? Hey. Are you using a cover crop in there or no? No, I'm not. Yeah. Then maybe it's too dry in the top. And I only got, long. yeah, I, mean, I only have seven gallon containers, but I know people have oh, worms thrown out of yeah. five gallons and stuff too. So well, I've had worms in a solo cup, man. <laughs> right. That's why I did see them once in the solo cup because I think, you know, that's wetter and. How much aeration are you pushing? Is it a full third, would you guess, or maybe more? I try to, but it's getting smaller and smaller. That's another thing. I, I'm going to have to go buy, because adding all that earthworm casting, you know, I see the difference. I'm going to have to buy some more. Um, I need to get some more pumice. But And the, I have thrown in rice holes. They're totally gone. It is amazing. They're like one run and done for me. Too. Yeah. They get eaten alive. Right, but they do feel good, and and like when you're mixing it, when you add them in, and like you know, put your hand in it, you know what it feels like when it's like good, good consistency. I like the rice holes, but yeah, they do disappear quick. So yeah, 
that is another thing. As you continue, as I continue the way I'm going, I'm definitely gonna have to add more pumice and um, yeah, more more aeration. I've uh, I took this I think from Brandon, one of your soil mixes. You were saying I think that you pushed almost forty percent aeration, and of that, I'll do like thirty three percent pumice and then like seven percent rice hulls. Uh, I know that's like a random number or whatever, but um, much more pumice than rice hulls because the rice hulls are going to go within that first run and I'll top dress them in the next run or whenever I'm transplanting and stuff like that. But I'm not expecting them to hold form anywhere in that soil because it's just going to get eaten up and compacted so quick. And with organic soil, that's one of the bigger issues if you're not tilling and reamending each time, which I'm not. Aaron, are you planning to do any uh, tilling or are you going to just cut it out and plant into the uh, pots for your next run? Um, I'm going to cut out and plant into the pots for part of it, but I'm going to be right now I'm running 60 plants. 59 of them are like um, 10 gallon pots that can be, you know, I can just cut the root ball out and plant next to it or, or you know, or, or plant next to it. Um, but then I'm going to be doing 90 plants on this run. so um i'll have some soil that's that'll be brandon soil on this flower run so i'll actually get to do like uh like a side by side hopefully i'll get to do a side by side like a little bit of a side by side but not not in any way comparing it just I, and right now my soil is shit which is part of the reason i wanted to you know make sure my next run is locked in tight and brandon's already got a a soil that's that's dialed in you know and when i say shit i just mean i'm my biggest critic and I, um, I've, I've had to play catch up a little bit because most of my soil was inactive for over a year. So numbers were all out of whack and, but you know, for, for all that being said, um, the bud that's coming out is looking super fire and, um, and, and I'm actually starting to work with, uh, hash makers. I, I have a few phone calls to make this week and, um, looking for somebody to process anything that isn't jar worthy that isn't like a nice big fat cola that can go into a jar so we're gonna have a very small batch release of high quality you know tops and then everything else is going to go to hash and we're going to try and uh, get that to the to the greater oklahoma area that's exciting i uh look forward to hearing people's uh, experiences with that. And it'll be fun to see when you've got 90 plants, 60 of them in the second run soil, and then 30 of them in the first run soil and see how it goes from there forward, even from that first run to the second run with Brandon's and then from the second run to the third run with your own, with the benefit of having testing and uh, looking at the plants, seeing how they're performing and trying to dial it into where you're happy with it, or at least as close to happy as we're going to get. Cause I personally, and, uh, Brandon might be one of the few exceptions out there, but I don't know if uh, many people are hitting like a 10 out of 10 on a run where they, they can say, I did everything perfect that run. Like it was start to finish. I wouldn't change a thing. Um, it might be easier if, if you are doing like uh, sap testing and, and tissue testing and soil testing. But even then, I'm sure, uh, Brandon, if you reflect on a grow, you can always look back and say, well, if I changed this or that, maybe I'd be able to improve it 1%. Yeah. Well, the thing is, so you can have your soil and all that data dialed in, but if you don't have something like your environment, you know, dialed in, some of that stuff doesn't even matter because some of those, some of those uh, elements like calcium specifically, right? That's a, that's a really good example that we can use. Uh, it's so highly dependent on transpiration 
And if your environment isn't conducive for your plant to be <laughs> transporting a lot of water, then uh, you might not be able to get the amount you need, even if it, there's the proper amount in soil, you know? Yeah, more CalMag doesn't fix it when it's too cold and it's too dry. So many times I've told people like, oh, you're running LEDs. Uh, I, I would run it a little bit warmer and a little bit more humid. And they do that. They don't change anything with their EC. So it will say it's 1.6 EC and they're giving it kind of all the nutrients it wants each time going in. But when it's 70 degrees and 20% RH, it's hard for the plant to uptake it. When they kick it up to 78 or 82 degrees and 50 or 60% RH, and it's more in that VPD range, the plants green up and they're like, holy shit, I didn't change anything but the environment. And now the plants are healthier. So I couldn't agree more with uh, Brandon on that one. In that, I love the analogy of like the barrel and the staves in the barrel. And like, you know, you have like each stave is like a different factor. So like nutrient, like nutrition of the soil. And then you might have like lighting and then you might have like carbon dioxide. And then you might have, you know, there's all these factors and your bud's only going to be as good as the lowest stave in the barrel. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the laws of min- law of minimum. Yeah, Liebig's law of minimum. Yeah, I love it. And even here, it says like yield is your water. That's kind of pouring and, out soil and, and other conditions: light, water, yeah, uh, sodium, yeah. magnesium, molybdenum, iron, uh, boron, nitrogen, calcium, magnesium, sulfur. This is actually, I mean, pretty damn accurate with what we're growing: uh, potassium, phosphate, zinc, and copper. And it would keep going around because there's a lot more other things. But this is a really uh, interesting reference point. And I think conceptually it paints the picture so well for any grower, because as soon as one of those things is too low, if you have too little light, too little CO2, too little nitrogen, too little water, whatever it is, you're going to start setting that 10 out of 10 run back to a 9.5 and then an eight and then a seven. And then you've got the chads out there growing, you know, two out of tens. So they really have lots of minimums not being met. And it's really amazing how, when you can get the plant kind of that full buffet of what it wants and dial in the environment. Uh, it shows how happy it can be and how much it can produce. So I, I love that uh, concept, Aaron. And we referenced that a few times, but I always like to pull up the uh, chart to visualize it. Cause I think it's, if, if any podcast or listeners are listening after this, you can go to the YouTube and check it out and, or just Google. I think it's Lee big. I'm probably mispronouncing that law of minimums. All the OGs yeah, pronounced really it correctly. Lie big's law of the minimum. Everyone knows really Carl Sprandle, Sprangle, Sprandle. I always get the name wrong. Um, who was uh, who was the real guy who came up with that? But you know how it is. People's uh, people, other people get credit for your own inventions. <laughs> I guess that is a shame, but uh, it does happen often. And oftentimes, like artists aren't appreciated in their time. Like they have to die to then become appreciated, and uh, happens very, very often, unfortunately. And uh, we come to find later that they had the good. Or right information or just talent but yeah that's a very interesting one for sure and i think uh, a lot of growers could if they're being honest with themselves a lot of people like to think oh i've been doing this for 20 years i know what the fuck i'm doing like i ain't shit i could change like my shit's perfect it's dialed in and in reality if you walk into anybody's grow room you could probably change one or two things and improve their grow by i don't know five percent or one percent maybe even ten percent if it's really like messed up like dude, it's way too hot in here, or way too dry in here. Or if it's not any of those obvious things, maybe a soil test might hit the nail on the head. They're like, holy shit, I didn't realize I was completely lacking molybdenum or some minor thing that uh, 
doesn't come immediately to mind because you don't hear it talked about too much. It's not just a uh, more cow mag, you know, it might be something else, or maybe oftentimes I, I found like with cocoa growers that I've helped using Dr. MJ's website and uh, many guides is that they have too much. It's not that there's the minimums aren't being met. It's that they have too much. Their EC is like four or five or six when it should be in like the 1.5 to two range. And there's so much salt in the medium. It can't take up water, let alone nutrients. So uh, I'm curious, Dr. MJ, uh, what are your thoughts about um, most growers maybe not having an issue with minimums and maybe overdoing the maximums? Um, yeah, I definitely think that both things take place. Um, it's interesting, you know, in that Liebig's law sort of example, we used to always think about the relationship there, just like with light and then light and carbon dioxide and sort of that trade off. Um, light is less of a limiting factor for people now. And, and I, I think that there are people that are overdoing it with certain things, whether that's nutrition or light and definitely hurting themselves more than helping themselves. It's not always sort of about pushing harder. It's about giving the plants sort of what they need to be able to perform their optimal performance. Um, so you can think about that the same way though. So like pushing too hard starts to pull the staves back down again, you know, um, sort of getting them each to their highest point requires, you know, balance. Um, and, and growing like a lot of things, I think there's, it, it's rare that sort of the optimal point is, is way out towards one extreme. It, it's about sort of finding the right balance between a lot of different inputs. That's a great way of putting it. I think homeostasis is a word that comes to mind for some, just getting that right level uh, where things are happy. And yeah, well, with, with fertigation in particular, when you're mixing nutrients in with the water, um, you know, plants take them up through separate processes and they're antagonists, basically. So the, the less fertilizer you put, the easier it will be for the plants to get the water. The more fertilizer you put, the harder it will be for the plant to get the water. And they just have to be balanced. I mean, you can't go to like none or very little fertilizer. Your plants will, will like, you know, develop deficiencies. But a lot of growers sort of think they should go in the other way, but they realize that giving more of that actually starts to take away from other things, take away from the ability to get water. And there's a limit to what, what you need for healthy growth in the first place. think along the same lines or at least related to um, what doc's saying there too is is that a lot of people that reach out to me that aren't even aren't even recording or checking what their runoff is and that leads to right. exactly what you guys are talking about they, they don't even realize that they're overfeeding they're just following a schedule you know following a schedule from the whatever they've we did their research and they <laughs> found a schedule and they're just doing that they're not you know Right. Using a way to really see what exactly is going on in the plant. And that's what's hard to get across to people because people don't get the fact that these are living things we're dealing with and they're not going to react exactly this exact same every single time. We can get them pretty close to that, but there's still differences in each different cultivar and uh, each different environmental situation. They might react different. So it's important to, to measure the outgoing just like the incoming. And I haven't seen too many nutrient manufacturers be... Uh, I'll say super accurate or honest with their dosing recommendations. I'd say most people are uh, having 
success with a quarter strength or half strength, uh, depending on the brand. And even if you're doing that, or if you're doing full strength and then giving it just water, full strength and then just water, whatever you're doing, uh, I think that having a meter is very beneficial if you're adding any sort of synthetic nutrient, I guess we'll call it. Because that way, like Spartan said, you'll know your inflow and your outflow. You can at least one time a week, maybe uh, measure what the strength of your nutrients is before you water it in and then see where the runoff's at. And if there's a giant discrepancy, like if it's coming out way, way higher, then there's probably some issues. If it's coming out relatively close to what it went in at, like if it went in 1.3, 1.4, and it comes out 1.5, uh, you're not having yeah. major issues. But if it went yeah, in 1.3 and like, came like, out 2.6, you're like, oh, damn, there's some problems four, going on. Here. Or, or error, like your your meter reads like error at that point, you know, when you try to, to read the samples. So yeah, it can definitely creep up if you're not paying attention to it. Guys, I got to cut out at the one hour mark here and it's approaching. And I feel like that was just the perfect moment to say I should probably go ahead and do that and say my goodbyes to Brandon and all you guys, because I got to head back to the house and water some plants because the lights are coming on here. Um, so uh, it was really nice to jump back on the show and do it collab style with uh, Brandon. And um, and I got to get out of here. He hooked me up with a bunch of gifts, some uh, Starfighter X Gas V2 F2. Oh, by this. This is a new one. Some Starfighter uh, Black Lime Reserve. Oh, nice. So I'm just going to give him some sleepy weed and then I'm getting out of here. It was nice hanging with you, man. Good to see you on a good feed. Always great to have you. And uh, like Tao said, uh, the Amish look is a good look on you. And they grow some uh, good plants, at least where I was from. They, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> oh, man, they made some great food, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to cut out also because I... I have uh, I got to get ready to go back to uh, Southeast Oklahoma tomorrow and go look at this this place. Oh, it was fun having you guys on this week. Yeah, it was great. Honestly, I love this uh, collab where you guys both get to come from one webcam, and uh, we really appreciate your knowledge and experience. And it's cool to get the updates uh, from Oklahoma. It's, to me, it's still kind of like the Green Rush state. People are rushing there, getting bigger operations up, and start it's changed the state i have a family from oklahoma and they've seen it change from before cannabis and after cannabis and even though they're not the most cannabis friendly they can't deny that it's brought a lot of money to the state and it's brought a lot of jobs to the state and benefit a lot of people in the state even if you don't have any use of cannabis electricians plumbers uh contractors who are building buildings and all that good stuff it's uh really had a positive touch on the state and i, I love to see that Indeed. All right. We'll see you guys later. Later. Peace and love, guys. See you guys. Bye. See you next week. Girls love. So we got a good question from Sour Diesel Changi in the chat, and uh, I probably should have dropped it before those guys left because I'm sure they would have had good input, but uh, we've got another several guys on the panel who also would have great answers to this question. Sour Diesel Tangy says, at Cheap Home Grow, if you'd like to be going, if you like, in parentheses, <laughs> It's going to be an expensive summer run in regards to electricity. Any suggestions for saving electricity slash money in the grow in the hot weather? I'm going to give two to start. And I'll say we talked a little bit about light cycles last week. And if you're running 24 hours on for veg, I would cut that down immediately. Um, I've run 17.7 for a while. I've even considered going 16 on, 8 off. And I think that if you're running adequate PPFD, the plants can still get a pretty decent veg rate. They're not going to necessarily go as, as quickly as maybe a little bit more light or more hours, but it'll help deal with some of that heat. 
also running your lights at night as much as possible. So like here in California, San Diego specifically, SDG&E, um, our bills are like four times higher for peak hours from like four to 9 p.m. And then as soon as it goes 9 p.m. to like 6 a.m., they're like, you know, one eighth the price and they're like super off peak hours. And then like the morning hours are average or whatever it is. So running at night will save you a ton of money on electricity, at least if you have on and off peak hours like we do here. Uh, but even if you don't, it could just help regulate the temperature because when it's night, it's usually colder almost everywhere. And so you're going to be running your lights during the coolest time. So you could either bring cool air in from outside or uh, just not have to run your air conditioning as much. Uh, I got a couple of one is might be a little obvious, but still you grow outside, you know, take it, take advantage of the sunshine that we have and the good weather. Well, the fairly good weather we have outside. Now I have to, I'm attempting to take advantage of that with some autos because I we kind of have a shorter window. I'm trying to do it that way, but that's still an option. Even if you don't own the land, you can put in pots out in your back porch, maybe. <laughs> Depending, I don't want you to get in trouble. You know, there may be but, legal issues. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's options. I mean, possibly. But yeah, yeah, those are grow, good ideas. Grow side or you know, take advantage of the natural sunlight, maybe through windows and things. Um, I don't know how effective it would be through a window, but uh, if you had a sunroom, you probably could absolutely grow an auto plant or even a photo plant. Uh, and then the other one would be if you're in an indoor space, uh, insulation. Don't underestimate sealing a room, doing a good job sealing a room and then uh, putting some good insulation there. Um, and if you have the option, maybe uh, if you have an actual room, and uh, the wall isn't insulated, just an addition of insulation uh, will make a big difference. Yeah, keeping some of the heat out. You know, most of the heat's going to come from the lights. Um, one thing potentially to, to help with cooling is to have a, a larger volume of space relative to the heat source, in this case, the light. But that's not very efficient for cooling. I think I mentioned earlier on the show that I'm taking the next few months off um, and thinking about it from sort of a cost of production perspective, um, you know, weed grown indoors over the winter, over the summer is more expensive than weed grown indoors over the winter. Um, so when you sort of step back and think about your annual production, if you can sort of try to plot that in um, and reduce the amount that you have to grow over the summer. Um, you know, smaller, smaller grow, less light, all these things. The other thing to deal with, if you really wanted sort of like, you know, what do I have to do if I'm going to be growing in a tent that's going to be like 85 degrees, um, you know, with, with let's just, let's just deal with that. Like if it's going to be running pretty consistently at 85 degrees, um yeah you know you could go a little bit hotter than that and still like survive it but you're going to reduce plant count increase airflow um and, you know have more room in between plants to like allow them to to be healthier plants in a hotter in a hotter environment um reduce electrical conductivity if you're fertigating um other things like that to sort of help plants deal with hot weather but um i, I don't know there, there's sort of like these are all just ways around the outside of this problem there's no good approach right through the middle of it i'll say this increased co2 really helps i'd never stop in the summer i'm definitely uh, really coastal so um 
I benefit from some cooler weather, even in the hottest times of the summer. I think the hottest yeah. we get is like 90 where I'm at and it's rare. We get a 90 degree day. So most of the days it's like seventies or eighties during the summer where I'm at. And we've got a lot of breeze and I have pretty good ventilation. And like doc was saying, um, 85 is probably the hottest I'm comfortable with it being consistently. Um, I try to keep it 78 to 82 ideally, but with CO2, I think that the plants can handle it a little bit hotter. And also doc actually gave me this uh, advice in the past. I believe it's yucca has some properties of heat resistance that it can impart to other plants like cannabis when you water yucca in. And as long as you're not doing an aquaponic grow or something where the yucca will like kill off your uh, fish, then yucca is a great, just one wetting agent or a surfactant. Um, But it also has that benefit of being a little bit of a heat stress uh, preventer and just gives that tiny little benefit. So those are another two things. I guess Noah the Groa has, uh, I think, probably got some advice because he runs HPS and he's dealing with the heat over there pretty consistently. Yeah. um, During the summer, there's a few different things you can do. Um, One of the things that I like to do is uh, just cut back. Um, You can cut back. Another thing you can do is in the summertime, I usually run 600 instead of 1,000. So if you were doing an LED, it's adjustable. You could adjust it down a little bit to help offset it. But another thing you can do is just make sure that all your like dehumidifiers, the filters on it are clean. If you're running like a mini split, make sure that you get like a dry vac, clean up the hose, the drain hose. Just clean out all the filters so your machines aren't working overtime. Just get everything in order. Um, another trick is if you have like a, an exhaust fan that's like pulling air, you know, with air cooling your hoods or anything, try in like a different times of the night, like, you know, late at night, like opening a door and cr- cracking the door open to let some cool air breathe in there. Just different little things you could do. But like Doc said, it's just going to go up. The price is going to go up. There's no way around it. But if you just do little things, you know, you can, you can have, you offset it a little bit, but it is difficult for sure. Rosinante had a great suggestion and I, meant to mention it earlier, but I want to give them credit because they reminded me of it was um, if it does get warmer, you can try and raise the RH a bit to follow the VPD to a point. Um, It does get risky if you just keep on cranking it, but they'll do a little bit better in higher heat. If there's also a little bit higher humidity, if it's hot and it's really dry, then they're going to struggle a lot more than if it's hot and it's you're going to just run into those issues late in the flowering period where having high humidity is going to be a risk factor for, for bud rot and dropping. It's probably going to put a lot of EPD stress on the plants if you can't drop the temperature too. So those are just the things that you have to juggle, but yeah, it is a good point for most of the grow that if you're hotter, be a little bit more humid. Well, like and kind of through it also suggested before earlier and i wanted to say it before i forgot was uh to increase levels of co2 can help with heat too so if you have a way to increase co2 levels there's yeah jack ways. mentioned that the problem there is that to really effectively get increased levels of co2 you kind of got to turn off your exhaust fan and then that introduces a whole host of other cooling issues like i think effectively using co2 is usually more hvac bill than just finding a way to deal with ventilation. Um, it depends on how this grower is set up. If they are equipped to, to seal it up. Um, but setup matters a lot. Cause like I'm only in, I'll say 400 square feet and I'll, I'll jokingly say I hired two cats and my cats just run around my house all day and them exhaling. My CO2 levels are 
rarely below a thousand ever. And they're typically between 1300 and 2000. And that's with exhaust fans running 24 hours, trying to pump the CO2 out of the place because my wife and I also live here and um, anything above 2000 starts to get fairly dangerous. Like there's warning levels. If you work in environments above 2000, I think 5,000 is where it really gets risky, but you don't want to be at super high levels of CO2 for extended period of time, whether it's your grow space or your living space. So um, that's how I've gone about doing it. I just didn't even realize it until somebody sent me a meter to test what my baseline was. And I realized like, that's oh, unusually yeah. high. I don't think most people are going to be able to sort of bank on already having enriched carbon dioxide, but yeah, it's definitely going to the be bedroom helpful. growers though. I think would be surprised if you bust out a CO2 monitor in your bedroom, if you grow like in a tent in the corner of your room, like I, I follow enough people that I've seen do this or in their closet in their bedroom. Um, it is a bit surprising just for safety levels and curiosity, if you have access to a CO2 meter and they're even cheaper now, I think you can get them for like 40 bucks on Amazon. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting thing to know and it can provide benefits to the plants. I think the Chandra et al study that we looked at yeah. pushed like 750 or 800 part per million of CO2. And that allowed them to get up to like that 1500 PPFD with a pretty optimal production. And then after that, we saw the drop off. So yeah, that drop off occurs regardless of the CO2 level, though, um, like going higher than that. They tested several different concentrations of CO2, but yeah, it was effective to just be at about 800. Which is nice because you only, and I say only, but only have to double from atmospheric, which is a little over 400, depending on where you're at. I think San Diego, it's like 440. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so to just barely have to double. Um, where some people for, for a long time, they're like, match your PPM of CO2 to your PPM of, uh, fertigation. So I, I knew people that were running like 1500 PPM CO2, 1500, uh, Oh, EC. you match PPM of, of CO2 to PPFD to average PPFD. I've definitely heard that, um, less regarding PPM in, in fertigation. I agree. Cause I don't even like PPM. There are three scales and they're so far off from one another. Like, when right. people ask me like what or they tell me a PPM, I always ask them for an EC conversion because when I, you just Google the scales and they're like a 0.5 could be the same as like a one, depending on what scale you're at. There's like the 0.5, the 0.75 well, or something. Yeah, there is a PPM. The different sensors are just not estimating it appropriately. So basically all of these sensors are measuring electrical conductivity. They're measuring the EC. And then they're using assumptions about what is in the water to generate a, a calculation of what the PPM is. So if you assume that like most of the electrical charge is caused by calcium, which is a double charged cation, then that means the, the PPM is lower because each one of those units is giving a double charge than if you assumed that it was, you know, mostly coming from a single charge cation. So in different parts of the world, they have different sort of concentrations and it's calcium basically is the big one because it's a big dissolved um, cation that's in water everywhere. And it's a double charge cation. Most of the charge that's in water comes from calcium. So they developed these different scales to account for different regions where there are different levels of calcium in the water. And that's sort of the best guess that they can do about what the, the parts per million are based on measuring the electrical conductivity. So 
there like is a ppm but we're just not measuring it accurately that's similar to like some of these light meters measuring light not measuring some of the spectrum like for example i was wondering today on the light that i have in my flower room now that has that added 700 and whatever it is 30 nanometer light. yeah probably 730 yeah like would that even be red like if i were to pull my pulse it depends down, on what like the quantum PPSD. sensor you have Okay. So like I test lights with two different quantum sensors for this exact reason for that 730 nanometer light, because PAR is 400 to 700. And that's just traditionally defined as PAR, um, photosynthetically active radiation. But a lot of recent research has shown that 700 to 750 nanometer light is also photosynthetically active. So if we want to understand sort of the, the total amount of light that's contributing to photosynthesis, you need to measure EPAR, which is 400 to 750. And I have a separate sensor for measuring EPAR. Um, you don't want to measure higher than that, like above 750, though, because those so essentially, photons... if you measured the same light, say, say that my light with the 730 on yep. with the sensor that doesn't measure EPAR, it would say I had a lower PPFD than if I had a sensor that said that does measure the EPAR. Correct. Does. Okay. Correct. That's how I measure them with sort of both sensors. The other part of this is, you know, depending on how many 730 nanometer diodes you have, the, the 730 nanometer diodes themselves are not usually the dominant source of no. far red light. Like the full spectrum diodes, all full spectrum diodes are putting out some amount of their energy as far red light. And it's not being counted by a traditional PAR sensor. Um, but it is being counted by the plants and contributing to their growth. Um, and, and this has been, this is sort of a reckoning that still needs to go through the, the history, like the Chandra studies, for example, those Chandra studies were all doing with PPFD measurements, um, which is just PAR, not the EPPFD, not the extended PAR range. So we know sort of the light sources that they were using, and we can go back and sort of estimate how how much light was also there from the 700 to 750 nanometer wavelengths, but they weren't including it because at that time and like all throughout the last several decades of plant research, that light wasn't considered to be photosynthetically active. Well, I definitely am a believer that it is just, uh, anecdotally after having yeah yeah and so like we have recommendations for like maximum ppfd density right we actually don't have a recommendation for maximum eppfd density like what, what can be the maximum density when you're counting those far red lights i mean i basically consider it, it like i treat it in my testing now like it's bonus light like i set the maximum at 1000 in the par range and then a fixture that puts out a lot of far red has like a really high EPAR score at that, or a really high EPAR density at that height. Um, because we don't really have separate testing like the Chandra study did with PAR that specifically looks at, at that range of light. We can estimate it more or less. And let me just say most fixtures, we're talking about four to 5% of the overall flux, the overall amount of light that they produce. That's fine. So shout out to 710 Kenneth again in the chat. It says, I just use my eyes. It's free. I'll tell you something, man. You can just use your eyes, but uh, your eyes can be very deceiving when it comes just to change of 
changing levels of lights and uh, it can when you see usually i'm just gonna make a broad statement here but usually usually on these plants especially cannabis plants when you see a manifestation in the plant like we'll say curled leaves or or something fucked up on it it's usually like the damage is already done so yeah, exactly. what the advantage of measuring these things is, is to stop the damage before it's done to make that adjustment before it hurts your plant. So your plant doesn't get that, that damage and it can just keep on rocking and rolling. So, so, I mean, I appreciate that attitude, but the, I mean, there is, there is, there's still an advantage to, uh, to, to do these uh, kinds of Yeah. Things. I want to even say this. I, I really recommend not using your eyes to measure your lights. <laughs> I invest quite a bit in eye protection equipment for myself because I spend a lot of time hanging around grow lights and would develop headaches and, and migraines because of the light. So, you know, your eyes aren't actually free. And if you do damage to them, the, they're much more expensive than than getting a quantum sensor, but they're not an exact replacement for for that either. I agree with what Spartan says. Now they're I don't a think poor really... replacement today because if you and like even like the old with HPS or HID bulbs, they put their hand under and get an idea of how deep their bulb. Right. That kind of worked with LEDs. One both visually and for the hand. I I've just personally noticed that according uh internet's unstable yeah it it doesn't work as well i mean in our our there's all these calculations this is one of the reasons you can't go from lux to ppfd very easily because different photons appear brighter or dimmer to us silly humans as opposed to what they appear to or how they affect plants you know red photons appear pretty dim um, relative to blue photons, blue photons rather, um, but plants actually prefer red photons and to say they have a preference is a little bit of an overstatement, but they do really well photosynthetically with red photons, which appear dimmer to us. You know, the old blurple lights um, appeared much dimmer than they actually were in terms of PPFD. Um, for that reason, because they had a lot of, of light that was just sort of dim on the lux meter, but a lot of photons and that energy is still a lot of photons. I'm not trying to the recommend th them. I'm just saying that, that that's a real thing. One of the things going back to what Spartan said is by the time you see curling or, or yellowing or having issues, um, damage has already been done. Brandon Ross is so firm on the testing end of hill people used to think like, oh, I can just watch my plant and tell when it needs more nutrients. And Brandon doing sap testing and, and soil testing, he can see, oh, I'm starting to see that the calcium or something is low on this before there's any visual indication. So he begins to supplement calcium and then he doesn't actually see what would show as calcium deficiency where, well, and we don't have access to the testing necessarily, maybe because of cost or where you live. Um, just kind of have to wait and then see if there is a deficiency and then maybe even figure out whether it's calcium or something else. And um, I don't think always uh, just waiting to use our eye and our instinct as, as much as it might feel like wholesome and like more uh, connection to the plant. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of benefit from the modern science meters and, and soil testing and, and sap testing, whether you want to do it or not, it, just uh, acknowledging that it's out there and it's available if you are ever struggling or having a smaller heart than you want to have or something. There are ways to dial it in and try and improve from where you're at. It doesn't have to just be like you're able to get a harvest happy with that. You can kind of always look to something to keep improving. 
No, I don't actually think people need to rush out and get quantum sensors. In fact, I, I really don't think home growers need to get quantum sensors. But you, unlike, you know, a soil test is a good example. Like if you are interested in a soil test, you need to have like your soil tested. Having somebody else's soil tested isn't going to do anything for you. It's not going to give you any useful information. But if you're coming to a light, you know, what you need is good information about how high to hang the light. Um, in the space that, that you're using and sort of what PPFD you can predict from a light at, at that hanging height in that space. I, I don't actually think you need to be able to measure it once you set it up. You can get that data from tests I do or tests other people do. Um, but that, that's what you need. And that's how I run my test. I, I use my own test data to determine the hanging height. I don't put my quantum sensor into my tent. Like actually pretty much never do I put my quantum sensor into my tent. Sometimes I use my quantum sensors for my seedlings when I have them like, you know, growing under their little lights to sort of dial in that light for them. But by the time they go into the big tent, uh, I'm setting that light up based on, you know, known values about PPFD at different hanging heights. I've seen people even tie like a string pre-measured to the canopy so that they know when the plant gets to that string, they can raise it up and then it's always going to be the correct distance for whatever PPFD measurements they wanted. And, um, <laughs> you know, my grow came out with his light. It was the six inches off the, the crop cover. Right. And I, I was talking to him about this. I'm like, you ought to just like include a little string that hangs down there so that people can like see how high it is and keep raising it up if they need to for that string. So yeah, you can definitely do that. And the one thing I'll say is even if, um, Chandra at all, or me and Dr. MJ tell you that, you can run a thousand PPFD or 1500 if you supplement the CO2. Uh, one of the first things that will stress a plant, if the thing that we referenced earlier, the Liebig or Liebig's law of minimums isn't met, the, the light is, is really driving almost everything like the photosynthesis, right? And if you can dial that back a little bit, if you're noticing your plants are stressed, I think Spartan and many others have given this tip in the past, dimming a little bit while you figure out and dial in the rest of the stuff can take a lot of the low load off the plant, even if it's just for a few days to figure out or just let them kind of adjust if it's a new light. So you went from a smaller veg light to a big flower light and you're just trying to hit them right off the bat with hundred percent of what it's capable of doing. Um, oftentimes I've noticed stress when that happens. So maybe starting at like quarter or half and then dialing it up a few percent per day until you get to a place where you're at the adequate lighting levels, but you're not just uh, hammering the plant with a ton of light right away. Cause I've yeah. seen that stress plants on more than one occasion and in my and in others gardens. And you got to realize that if you're struggling with, you know, 800 PPFD, you're going to struggle more with like a thousand PPFD, right? Um, it's just going to sort of like be, be pushing the gas down a little bit harder while you're already struggling to stay on the road. Um, so if you have any kind of nutrient issues showing up, anything like that, adding more light is sort of putting more pressure on all of those things. So to get up to 1500 or even to get up to a thousand um, without CO2, it, it, like Jack's saying, it really depends on everything else being humming and delivering it that because you will quickly expose the next shortest stave in your little barrel. I love that comparison of basically uh, you're stepping on the gas pedal even harder and trying to stay on the road uh, because really that's exactly what you're doing. You're giving it more power to what you're trying to grow and uh, you're already having a hard time with the control. So I, I love that uh, simile metaphor. I'm not even sure which one it is, but I uh, greatly said there, Dr. MJ. Thank you.
they're talking a little bit about UV in the chat when I just got to kind of uh, restate. And I, I know I've said this many times in the past, and I think Doc has as well, that there's not a whole lot of data to support adding UV at this point to your cannabis. It's uh, very tough to find research that supports it. And if you're doing it, um, I'm curious what your basis for it is and which UVs you're using. I think UVA is one, uh, City Grown and Sour Diesel Tangier talking a little bit about. And I'm not to say that it's impossible to get a benefit out of it. Um, I mean, the sun has it and plants growing outside are often amazing. So I don't think that it's like the worst thing in the entire world, but I, I wonder about its implementation as far as cost benefit analysis versus just good light within that EPAR range. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there's very little backing for the, the UV argument. Um, the thing that drives me nuts is, you know, I find there's all sorts of practices that you may want to try out in your grow um, that I may not think are backed up by science and that's fine for you to do them. But I don't think this should be part of like the grow light itself. Growers keep coming to me and be like, oh, I wish this light had UV diodes. I'm like, I wish it, I wish the other ones didn't. Um, you know, to the extent that there is a use for it, just like combining it and running it full time with your, your par light is unlikely to be the, that use. And, you know, if you're out there thinking about two different grow lights and I test lights with and without like three or four UV diodes, but like that should not be even taken into consideration. In fact, to a certain extent, I think not including them is like a more serious thing to do as a grow light company. When you're including a, a smattering of, of UV chips like that, I think it's basically just because growers that, that don't really know what to look for in lights are like wanting them. Um, and the grow light companies are trying to meet that demand, whether it's good for the plants or not, or it whether feels it more makes like any the sun. Kind of meaningful difference. They think it's like the sun. That's a, it really what it comes down to. I think a lot of the time is, hey, the sun never turns off its UV, right? So they just think, well, if, if the sun's got it, then I want it in my grow light. I don't care if it's one diode or five diodes or 10, or if it's even actually UV or if it's effective at all. Um, most of the problem with the UV is from what I saw in LEDs, diodes are extremely expensive. So you're going to get very few of them and they burn themselves out. UV is just like, it, it fucks things up. Like it, it sterilizes things. It does other things, but it causes damage to like your skin, your eyes and UVC is like very cancerous. Uh, UVB and A are both very bad for your eyes. So it's um, not something that you really want to be around that often. And I'm definitely uh, in agreement that a lot of the UV that's implemented for the entire growth cycle, um, I can just outright disagree with that for current implementation. Now with the LEDs, I don't think it's being done particularly well. And I think it adds additional expenses that maybe you'd be better off spending elsewhere in the grow. And not to mention the fact that light from UV light from LED diodes is not very efficient. Um, so it's even if you wanted UV light, you shouldn't be getting it from diodes. You should be getting it from fluorescence. Fluorescence is by far the, the most efficient way to produce UV light. So get a fluorescent tube. It seems like old fashioned growers are like, I want something more modern or something like that. But the fluorescent tubes are the most efficient way to get UV light and run it as its own separate fixture and do what you want with it for whatever purposes you think you want to use it for. But yeah, it, it, it's not 
part of the light that we use for growing plants and it really shouldn't be included with the light that we buy for growing plants. In my I opinion. agree with the UV fluorescent. And if, if you're going to absolutely like, Hey, screw these guys. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to use UV. Um, there's a guy who's on grandmaster level show, uh, reefer something, uncle, Reef, uncle reefer. And I believe that he uses those uh, tubes and I believe that he started at, at just one hour per flower cycle. And I think it was like not even during the stretch. It was like once th weeks three to like finish or something. Um, but just an hour a day and maybe even less than that. Cause if you overdo it, you can really cook and like punish your plants and, and have severe negative effects. Like Bruce Bugby has come on and talked about how he's tried to do this experiment dozens of times and they've never been able to find a good result versus growing it under their traditional lighting, which they're actually doing scientific experiments where they have growth chambers that have controlled environments and they have the lighting where they know exactly how much they can get per square foot uh, yielding, how much cannabinoids, how much terpenes. They're doing all these tests scientifically uh, much more than we are scientifically. They're doing it at a university on hemp, granted, but hemp is cannabis. And uh, I believe that they're also doing THC stuff that we're probably not privy to. And it's, uh, if he's so staunchly against it, I don't think it's like, he's just trying to like keep some secret in his back pocket. Like, Oh, I'm going to tell everyone not to use UV and I'm secretly going to be using UV. Like he's tends to be pretty honest about all of the data and research that he's put out and my experience from what I've looked through. I can tell you right now, he would love to find something that it did. I mean, that's what scientists are looking for when they run these experiments. Nobody wants to come back and be like, yeah, I did this experiment. We found nothing. I mean, he spent how much money? Right. But that's what you got to come back when that what the data is. I mean, he would love to come back and be like, OK, so now I know exactly how much percentage we need to use at what parts of the cross. I mean, that would be incredible knowledge. And, and that's exactly what he's looking for. The fact that he hasn't found it means that he hasn't found it. I mean, it's yeah, like, it's publish or perish. Like he would love to be posting use this much UV, even if it was like I don't know, five minutes a day made what percentage change, whatever it was, whatever right. it is, if he could post anything novel, he would make a huge name for himself that he's already, you know, got a pretty solid name, but he's doing research on this and not finding it. So if right. it was there, no, I know what it's like to, to be sort of like to think about setting up an experiment like this, you definitely want to, to come back with some results, like finding nothing is enlightening to, to a certain extent, but you can never stop sort of looking then because you haven't turned over like every single possible rock. I mean, so like you're really trying to find something and you set up experiments where you think you're going to find some sort of response. And when you don't, you're kind of like, crap. Okay. <laughs> Time to pee hack. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make, make it less and less significant until it uh, seems like it is actually significant. But uh, Franklin Guerrero, since I think we've beaten down the UV into the ground quite enough. Uh, Franklin oh, Guerrero. I want to mention something about okay, UV. Go, go. I just want to say this one small part that it's not novel because a bunch of people have already talked about this and there's research about it, but you know, it's not so great for a lot of uh, pests. So I just happened to, you know, for those who haven't heard already, you know, ultraviolet is not good for your skin. You know, it's not good for the cuticle and the livelihood of a lot of fungi and insects too, and mites. So for one thing, that's why a lot of them like to be on the underside of leaves. Um, it's just physically blocking them from that and other, other sort of problems, but perhaps there would be maybe there's a way people have wands and things like that i'm not so sure about the efficacy of those uh personally but um i do feel like at some point in the future um there could be some way of using ultraviolet light in like a 
maybe a pesticidal way. I mean, we already use that in some ways, but like, but maybe not for growth so much. Yeah. Right. I, I definitely agree. There are definitely applications for UV, for sanitation, for other things like that, for killing bugs, potentially. Um, Even molds. Can't can grow. Was using uh, some like the sanitation wand or the clean wand or something it was called. It's like a UVB or UVC thing that he would hover right. around his plants. He was getting PM with 20% relative humidity, which was kind of blowing me away because we talked about the risk of higher RH later in flower earlier. And it just kind of blew me away. And I think Noah's even mentioned you had said like 30 or 40% RH and you were having PM for a little while. And so you were able to kick it. So I'm curious if Matthew or if Noah have any thoughts on low RH, but still getting PM. I mean, it's definitely like one thing people know about the, the moisture being like important. Cause I think it helps to understand that like like I just mentioned, one reason mushrooms and other fun, you know, fungi and the those that produce mushrooms like the dark dank areas is because you know it's low UV. Uh, that's not true for everything. But it's also one reason why melanization is such a big deal for fungi, so they can um, have a defense for that. But the moisture is helpful for the growth, but when it dries, that actually makes the um, it's it uh, in a lot in some fungi anyways it stimulates the production of like the fooding bodies and also in some cases the release of those spores and conidia and I think that's true for powdery mildew as well um, and there's also little microclimates that will erupt and sort of um, develop in foliage so even if it's generally relatively dry there can still be a high absolute humidity in some locations or maybe there's a wound or some other sort of thing to happen. Um, I think people really overestimate that. I mean, like, I guess that X factor that there, there are things that are happening that are kind of hard to track or overestimate how accurate their RH meter is. Maybe they think it's yes, 20, but it's 40 too. and the microclimate that you just mentioned, it's so happy. So often happens with cannabis because the way that the buds kind of crest out of the plant and the way that the leaves lay, they're going up and down and all it takes is one leaf to lay over top of a bud for a little while for it to create a microclimate where there's you know, moisture building up and you can get some PM. Oh yeah. So, or a, even just like when you water the plants and it evaporates. Yeah, no, that's very true. And people don't realize uh, they're not in there. I think that's why some of these units like the pulse grow where you can kind of see the little data tracker of like how your RH actually is throughout the entire day versus just like a high and a low is pretty cool. But um, we had a great question from Franklin Guerrero that I think we can all offer some, maybe not all of us offer advice, but I think there's uh, some tips that we could pass forward to them. They say, any recommendations on growing in the Sonoran Desert, Phoenix, Arizona? And Matthew has talked a little bit about some high desert growers here in California. And um, I've actually seen very recently a few different desert growers that are having a lot of success with cannabis. And uh, the two tips I guess I'll start off with are shade cloth, number one. You're going to get plenty of uh, light for the most part and heat depending on the season. Shade cloth will really help you uh, maintain lower temperatures and it just, the plants do really well, even without the full sunlight um, and keep them well watered. You know, you, if you have a water source nearby, like a river, or if you can somehow get a giant ass tank and fill it up before your season and always have uh, access to water there and make sure you've got good mulch layers and things like that so that the soil is staying consistently uh, wet, even on those hot, dry days, it's got to stay, you know, pretty well watered. Otherwise your microbes are going to die out and things like that. It's going to be much more difficult for you. So I'd start off with those two and pass it, I guess, next to 
uh, nephew because you've talked a bit about in the past you had some people growing up there until some maybe human IPM <laughs> didn't get addressed but maybe some tips on uh, it seemed like they were having some success up until that point yeah definitely I mean the the major thing that they can attribute their success to aside from their talent things like that would be their you know their their source of water the fact that they had like a literal like creek that was running across um, you know in a place that's very scarce of of hydration, of course, it's going to be super helpful. Uh, so they kind of grew near a bank in that way, which has its own advantages and disadvantages there. And I do also have to agree with the shade cloth idea as well. Just like protecting your plant from that over over sunning um, can be really critical, especially when it's younger. Um, in in the Sonoran Desert, right? So I would say that a lot of people don't realize this maybe if they don't live in the desert, but actually like speaking of somebody who lives in Southwest California, you know, in a, uh, in a city, they, there's a lot of bugs in the desert and maybe they already know this, but um, you know, light travels greater distances, you know, unobstructed. So, you know, light security is going to be important potentially if you don't want to attract things to your porch at your house, I'm assuming this is like a residential sort of situation. And if it's like my friend's situation, it was outdoors, but it might not have to be. Um, but even if your situation is indoors or, or sheltered in like a greenhouse type structure, um, you know, pretty obviously like that, if you have like lights go off or things like that, like there's going to be insects that are going to be attracted to that. And they'll travel great distances to find there. And, um, you know, if, to insert, that presentation I was talking about earlier about the budworm moths that I'm going to be doing, um, you know, that's that's an interesting point to make because they, those ones in particular, they can, they can in one lifespan, which is about a month long, they can travel like 800 miles. Um, they've traveled from like Mexico to like northeast uh, North America, so that's really impressive and. I bring it up because like on a smaller scale, all these insects can do that too. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking assholes. (laughs) It's unfortunate as as impressive as it is that they're capable to do that. Yeah. It's such a short time too. (laughs) Right, right. So, um, so yeah. So I would say that like just having appreciation for the the flora and fauna, um, hopefully in the desert, you're going to be dealing with a lot of scraggly, like I, I'm in the coastal desert, coastal chaparral. So we have some, a little bit more vegetation in some places, but, um, when it's really, really arid, uh, you might have a lot more plants that are not necessarily, um, conducive to a lot of those, those pests who can really do well on those juicy, uh, crop plants that people might be growing or things, um, of that nature. So their post includes an emoji. Uh, and it's a cacti in the desert with like it actually looks kind of like the Sonoran Desert. My wife's from Tucson. I've driven through Phoenix uh, a handful of occasions, and the Sonoran Desert there's mostly cacti and a few of these trees. I can't think of the name. They're kind of like a yellow flower, but other than that, there's not a whole lot out there. But there are bugs, and the weird thing is, uh, Arizona gets monsoons where there's a few months where it just rains like crazy, and they get haboobs where like these giant sandstorms and like it literally looks like the fucking dust bowl like they're horrifying like it it looks like a a scary movie like people have to pull over to the side of the road to stop and wait for it to be over because it's just a giant cloud of like mud sand wind like Like rain 
it's hor- horrifying. But yeah, best is is wild. So when I heard this question, I was originally thinking this was just somebody that like lived in the Sonoran Desert and was going to be like growing it indoors, but like hot, dry climate, like indoors. When Jack started talking, I'm like, oh, he's thinking like out with the cacti. Um, do we know for sure if this is like out with the cacti in a greenhouse, like Matthew said, definitely like indoors? <laughs> it would definitely change things, right? It would definitely make a difference. Yeah, it would definitely yes. make a difference. I, and I guess my my, I'd echo some of the things that you said in terms of like water. It's going to take a hell of a lot of water. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure that it would be an endeavor that I'd tried to pull off, like growing outdoors in the desert in the summer um, amongst the cacti. I think that there are probably better ways to spend your resources. But well, um, assuming that's what they're trying to do, I before I, I got to jump off anyway, but before... Uh before I do yeah, yeah. I, had, I had some ideas and um I would uh, recommend planting from seed because you'll get a taproot and hopefully it'll shoot straight down and maybe find and if you're lucky as hell find an under, underground water source that it might be able to tap into um another idea with water conservation is if you could get a cover crop going and around it it can help to retain some moisture I'm assuming you're gonna have to be watering these things and uh, you have that figured out um, and if you're going to be watering them anyway, you should be trying to retain some of that water. And uh, I would be doing cover crop for that. And um, last but not least, I would do, uh, I would try to gather up as many free 55 gallon drums as I can. And I'd be setting them around my plants and letting it catch rainwater or fill them up yourself and then cap them off. And those are just fucking uh, temperature banks because in the desert, the fucking what people don't think about is it's hot as fuck. Yeah, everybody thinks about that, but they don't think about the cold as fuck in the, in the, at the nighttime. And what these little water barrels will do will act like kind of like um, a wallapini technology. And it's just a, a bank for that heat during the, during the, you know, lights on, we'll say. And so when the lights go off and it gets cold as fuck in the desert, some of that heat will radiate back off that water around your plants. And then the vice versa works, you know, in the morning time. So all that heat is dissipated out of that water and it's kind of a little chill when the daytime sun comes out and it gets hot as fuck, some of that coolness radiates off of that water as it starts absorbing some of the heat. So that's another little trick you can try that might help a little bit um, with your plants. But other than that, guys, it was awesome hanging with you. Awesome to see everybody in chat. It seems like chat's getting bigger and bigger, which just makes me smile. So that's cool. And uh, <laughs> and it's always awesome hanging with you guys, man. So thanks for thanks for the hang. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. And I don't think we have a guest or anything on the Michigan Rose Grow Show, but uh, I'm sure we'll have some amazing topics. So catch us there here in a few minutes. <laughs> see you guys. Here, Spartan. Thank you so much. I love Spartan. It's great advice. I think uh, Sequence did that in his greenhouse with the barrels where uh, he had some like black He's barrels so and they definitely do a great job of uh, holding heat from the day and uh, dissipating it out through the night. I was going to say, if you're up for the endeavor, if you have like a excavator, you could try and dig out a wallapini style greenhouse. Um, I still haven't seen from Franklin G. I don't know if they dipped out because I said their actual name on the live stream and maybe I should have uh, shortened it. But um, that being said, if you could dig into the ground like five, six, seven, eight feet, then you can create what's called a wallapini greenhouse where you're underground partial way and that allows you to be a little bit cooler you get the earth's natural temperature and you still get light if depending on which way you face it you want to obviously get uh the most light that you're going to need i guess depending on 
uh, where you're at, but I've never actually uh, seen a wallapini out in Arizona, so I can't say for sure. The people that I saw successfully doing it were above ground, growing in massive pots, and they had a bunch of shade cloth. So they were kind of growing in like beds or uh, huge pots, and they had just wooden posts set up with shade cloths over the plants. It wasn't even like a greenhouse in certain circumstances, and they were still having much more success than I would ever expect to see cannabis in any desert. Like you look around and there, the one example was like, like sand dunes next to it. And there was cannabis, but obviously uh, that wouldn't be the greatest to get sand in your cannabis. But I think they've figured those things out with like uh, nettings and mesh and things like that, but it's possible. So I wouldn't discourage uh, people from trying. And, and like Matt, I mentioned a little bit earlier with Matthew's group in the Chaparral area, their plants didn't fail because weather or nature. It was because they got jacked. There was crop jackers out there who found the plant before they were able to get it harvested. So uh, making sure that it's secure, having fencing around your property, uh, lighting, security cameras, things to make it not appealing for people to come onto your property at all and even be able to discover the crop, let alone come cut it down before you. Because it's a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Like we were talking about all that water it is going to be a lot of water and that alone, getting it out there, giving it to the plants, uh, building up the necessary soil structure and, and everything to allow a plant to live and survive and thrive in the desert environment, regardless of season, it's a huge ordeal. So to have that stolen from you is heartbreaking and uh, we never want to see that. So don't let the jackers win. Make sure you've got good security uh, unless it's like a which would be crazy enough, a gorilla grow in the desert, like going out to the fucking desert, lugging water out there. I don't think that's going to be happening. So hopefully it's at a property you own that you can uh, secure privately and all that good stuff. Anybody have any final thoughts uh, before we go into the shout outs? We got about 10 minutes. I know we've got a smaller panel now than we did at the start. So anybody who hasn't gotten a chance to talk, I guess, uh, Noah, I'll pass it to you first. You've been a little quiet over there. No, no, I've been just listening. Um, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so the desert talk is a little uh, different than I'm used to. So I was just soaking all that in. I have, uh, when I was younger, in my younger days, growing some plants outside, and I tied them down and just kind of tried to, you know, hide them in the environment. And then I took like an old like air mattress and like filled it up with water and then i took like a like a poly line and like drew little teeny pinholes so that it would just kind of grab up on a hill gravity fed the water just kind of drip it out just kind of you know just because i would just i'd go there like you know twice a year three times a year you know and just let it do its thing and uh yeah so yeah I, i've never i've never grown in the desert though so that's interesting you're in the opposite of the desert in the pacific northwest yeah, it's like yeah. one of the wettest places on the planet yeah it's uh it's close to being in the rainforest without being in an actual rainforest i think it's uh not not my it's an actual rainforest preference. oh it is okay then that makes more sense yeah it's a temperate rainforest <laughs> all right yeah i i was gonna say it rains all the fucking time up there and noah's definitely uh got the dehumidification dialed in uh is a must in that area yeah, see in in that way i think that growing in the desert like if we go back to sort of like an indoor situation in the desert i think you got a lot of advantages you clearly have the heat you got to deal with but you know dehumidification is is often more costly than than straight hvac and in a desert setting you can sort of set up a lot a lot 
easier to do a fully sealed grow, I think, than than you could in a wetter environment. Um, but outdoor, yeah, it depends again on on the challenges you face. If it's in your yard, I think you can handle it. Um, and I think you guys gave good advice for that. Um, setting up any kind of like out scale grow, like in in undeveloped desert, seems like a, a disastrous plan to me. But um, you know, it depends on, on exactly what you're doing. The larger scale commercial greenhouses actually do a really really good job because, like you were talking about, uh, air conditioning is a little bit easier than dehumidification at yeah. scale, especially when they know exactly how large their greenhouse is going to be. They know what the seasons are like and how hot it gets. And there are rating like the insulation of the greenhouse also matters, not just like for indoor growth spaces, but greenhouses insulation is a huge factor. So uh, there's a group, I think it's called like Sunday Goods. They were interviewed on uh, one of the shows that Spartan's group was highlighted on, but I'm blanking on the name. I think it's uh, something house. Uh, somebody in the chat will remind me of what it's called a grower's house i think is the name of the group and they go through to different commercial grows and one of them happened to be in the desert in arizona and um there's one the a dutch breeder ended up being like their master grower but it was interesting they're growing in straight perlite tubs and uh reusing it every single grow and they used a lot of uh old dutch greenhouse techniques so it was uh cool to see it implemented and they're having some success over there but the one thing that i found most interesting was like I mentioned earlier with the um, different seasons where they have really dry seasons and then they actually have the heavy rains uh, monsoon season, I think is what they call it. And it's like two months. And in that two month period, I think that they said they can only really get away with like, even with all their dehumidification and everything, they found it's easier to just grow. Like that's when they're going to grow their tropical sativas and, and other plants like that do well in the really uh, high moisture. Yeah, when the RHs are. Yeah. So it was cool to see that like genetics actually do play a big role. And if you're smart about how you plan it, it can, it can be a challenge to do that. I mean, it's a challenge when you're setting up a commercial facility to, to figure out your clones, depending on what kind of plant count you're going for. But, um, you know, if you only have a variety that you're firing off into a flower room, once a year or maybe twice a year or something like how are you keeping those mothers um how much space are you dedicating to them and then how much space do you need to have with them in order to cut enough clones for that run when you do want to use them um so there's really a a, a lot of planning for how to deal with with switching out strains in a commercial facility like that yeah it's it's really a tall task, but I think everybody kind of comes at it from a different angle. This group had hundreds of different clones, and I think they'd only run certain ones for certain seasons, um, but they'd hang on. And I don't think their clone room was super huge. They had a massive-ass greenhouse. I'll have to send you the video after this. Uh, it wouldn't be the easiest because I'm already on YouTube and watching a YouTube video and streaming to yeah. get it up and uh, shared. But, yeah, it's, it was interesting to see for sure. And uh, I guess uh, – Tao, you're the last one. Do you have any final thoughts? And or, and Matthew as well, after you. Uh, not really, but I do understand that everyone is consistent on saying that trying to get UV light from LEDs is a futile, uh, you know, act. So I'll throw that in. And um, but and Uncle Reaper doesn't claim like he got more THC, but he says when he added the UV light, his plants just seemed happier and more green. 
and lush. So that's, you know, anecdotal. But um, yeah, other than that, I never grew in the desert. I would imagine if you could cavulate that those subs, sub-irrigated planters might help if you keep that water going. And uh, yeah, that's about my only two cents. That's good advice because I know the sub-irrigated planters do tend to hold water being plastic all the way around and then having the water basin at the bottom. It's got at least, you know, two and a half or three gallons. And then when it sucks that up, it's still got whatever's within the soil. So it gives you a nice little buffer of time, at least before you have to go water again. I like Noah's idea with the uh, uh, air mattress, essentially filled it up with water, drilled some holes and let it kind of drip down the hill. Uh, DIY drip irrigation back in the day, uh, gorilla style. Chief home girl. Chief home girl. That's what it's all about. Repurposing, reduce, reuse, recycle, and rethink, right? Uh, we tried to do our best. Uh, that's what I'll say in regards to that. It's uh, We're not always perfect, but we attempt to uh, do it the best we can at the lowest possible dollar when it makes sense and is safe to do so. And uh, I'm so happy to see, like uh, Spartan said, the chat grows a little bit each week. We've got uh, our consistent people that we love to uh, see, but it's always nice to see some new faces as well. So thank you, uh, like Jim O in the chat. I haven't seen that name. Maybe I have and uh, not remembering it, but Sacred Garden is a regular. Uh, Green Table Gardens is one I don't see as often, real red hairs, lots of great people. Cam, the can of man, smart poker, uh, very regular. Anybody with the blue wrenches you see has been here for a long time. That's for sure. Eagle gardens. Cheers, everybody. Kazoo. And uh, we're coming into that point where I'm going to pass it around to everybody to let you know where you can find them. So I'm going to start that off with Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. My name is Matthew Gates. If you're curious or interested to know more about the pests that you might have to deal with in cannabis, but also in other, in other crops for that matter, uh, you should check out my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, the same channel that I'm commenting in the chat with. You can also check out my Instagram, which is at SyncAngel, like S-Y-N-C-H, Synchronize. And you can also make professional inquiries if you have need for um, on-site evaluations or uh, I do training and educational presentations about pests and how to recognize them and scout for them and that kind of thing too, as well, um, on my website, Zenthanol.com. And again, I have a presentation coming up about the three most important budworm species that are in cannabis and how to deal with them, a little about their evolutionary history, which gives you a context for how, how dang good they are about resisting, um, by the way, BT toxins, which are often used against caterpillars, but also pesticides that have been used that are really bad, even like things like DDT, but also botanical compounds you might use as well. So again, uh, nothing is safe. And the more you know, the better you will be able to deal with those issues. That'll be on the Future Canvas Project 02 channel in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to it. Always informative and uh, appreciate that information. Chief Man says, I made it late, better late than ever, Chief Man. Appreciate you being here and appreciate everybody who is here uh, with us live and anybody who listens after the podcast. Uh, next up, Noah the Groa. Yeah, I uh, had a good time with everybody. I'm Noah the Groa on Instagram. You can find me there. And uh, most weeks here. Uh, see everybody next week. Thanks again for joining us, Noah. And maybe next week we could uh, get a little glimpse of that garden. I know we got the, the teaser at the end of the show after we were off the live. But I know the people that are here with us on the YouTube would love to see that garden. Always coming. Good stuff. Good stuff. Next up, Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yes, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Had a fun show today. Thanks to everybody for coming on. It was fun to see 
um Aaron and Brandon come on together like that um anyways a couple of things I'll announce we have the grower love giveaway going on at Cocoa for Cannabis this month the prize is a Vipar Spectra KS5000 um really nice light I tested a couple of months ago for four by four grow um available yours for the winning on the deals and discounts page at Cocoa for Cannabis and I'm finally going to have another uh, part test premiere with a giveaway this week. It's probably going to be like next weekend, to be honest with you, but probably before our show next week. Um, it's been like I've been on a mini hiatus. It's been a little over a month since I published a new video on my channel. So I'm going to break out of that and publish a few here in the next few weeks. But um, this one's giving me the Mars Hydro FCE 3000. And I'll be giving that away during the premiere. Um, so stay tuned for that. That's on the Dr. MJ Coco YouTube channel. And um, yeah, I'll be back next week. Grow love, everyone. Grow love, indeed. It's uh, cool to see all, the, all of those things that you just mentioned and what you're a part of have come a long way. I mean, Coco for Cannabis is growing and the community just keeps getting bigger and better. And um, you're giving away all these lights and the companies that you mentioned maybe five years ago, I would have not been as supportive of them and now they're putting out great lights for a good price and good quality and uh, sure. it's helping people grow tons of amazing quality cannabis medicine uh, for themselves and their families and friends so cheers to that and thank you doc for doing what you're doing for the community it really uh it goes sometimes uh, unthanked and maybe uh not as appreciated as it as it should be so much appreciation for all that you're doing where we love jack thank you last and certainly not least the american one Jack, shout out to you for hosting again. Always good to have you and everyone on the panel. I love uh, Sunday nights listening to every, what, what everybody's got going on and uh, seeing chat. I wasn't too active tonight, but uh, I've been uh, multitasking, but you've had my undivided attention. And shout out to everyone. Peace. The master of multitasking, the American one. Always a pleasure to have you and your infinite wisdom on the panel. Uh, we love love having your input uh, as much or as little as you feel like talking each week. It's uh, great to have you. And uh, as anonymous as you may be, we always love the, uh, the voice and the accent. It adds a great bit to the, the show. So thank you again for joining us. And I guess I'm the last one to go. You can see my logo here. I'm at Jack Greenstock, mainly on Instagram, where I don't post too much. Occasionally do stories. And uh, a lot of saved stories is where I like to share the most stuff there. But also Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And if you would like to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And if you want a copy of the book, 50 Strains of Green, you can go to 50strains.com. Still working on finishing up 50 Strains Purple, but uh, it'll be done later this year. So you can look forward to that as well on 50strains.com. And I really appreciate everybody who showed up both here live on the YouTube and who listens afterward on the podcast. That's actually uh, sometimes double uh, what the live or even full YouTube viewership is. A lot of really dedicated podcast listeners and they listen like 99% of the show start to finish. So a really dedicated group out there trying to learn more and, and grow more and just uh, keep on keeping on with the cheap home grow cannabis scene. So we're going to keep this thing going as long as we can. I love doing this each week and have a great time. Look forward to it. And I'll see you all next week. Jack Greenstock, signing out. Grow love everyone. <laughs>